Praise the Lord. Amen. Let's all stand. So good to see everyone here this evening. Amen. Let's go to the Lord in prayer this evening. Uh, Let's ask the Lord to bless this service. This is His service. We are here for His purpose, for His reasons. Amen. To receive of Him His good things. While we're praying for our service, uh, let's remember uh, Sister Shepherd. Uh, her mom is. She's on, she has she's she has days left. I'll put it that way. She has days left, and according to the doctors, and so uh, the family is just starting to make preparations, uh, but. We understand as the people of God that it's still not too late. God can still heal her. God can still do a miracle in this situation. Amen. So I want us to continue to remember Stacy Becker. I'm sorry. Thank you. I didn't know that. Sandy Becker in prayer. Amen. She also needs salvation. Amen. <clears throat> so let's remember let's remember her let's remember her family as we pray for our service this evening Lord Jesus you're an awesome God you're a glorious savior I am so thankful for the mercies of God which are renewed unto us every morning Hallelujah Jesus you are a merciful and a gracious God forgiving sin and iniquity and transgression Hallelujah Jesus we are eternally grateful that You suffered on a cross and died in our place, that we might receive forgiveness of sins, that we might receive life everlasting. Hallelujah, Jesus. Not of our own works, not of our own ability, but because of the finished work of Jesus Christ at Calvary are we saved today. Hallelujah, Jesus. We pray, Lord. We pray for this desperate need. I pray, Lord, in Jesus' name. You are the author of life. You are the author of salvation. Heal her. Save her. In Jesus' name. Hallelujah, Jesus. Only You can affect any change at this point in time. Only You have power over life and death. Hallelujah, Jesus. So we turn to You, the Lord of life, the God of life, to see this situation affected. In Jesus' name we pray. And I pray for our service this evening that You would minister here wondrously, gloriously in this place, that You would arise and that Your enemies would be scattered. Oh, hallelujah, Jesus, that Your Spirit here would have free reign to accomplish all of Your heart's desire, to manifest all of Your will in Your service this evening. Let Your name be glorified tonight. And these things we ask in Jesus' name. Hallelujah, Jesus. Oh, hallelujah, Jesus. We do, Lord, and magnify You. We heap unto You all glory and all honor, all worship and all praise, because only You are worthy. Hallelujah, Jesus. Hallelujah, Jesus. Praise God. Praise God. He's an awesome God, church. He's worthy of service. He's worthy of worship. He's worthy of our full attention. Amen. Amen. God bless you. Thank you for seeking the face of God. You can be seated this evening. 
Amen. We're going to continue our study of doctrine this evening. We kind of split off the doctrine of God. We're handling that on separate nights because there's a lot to say about God. And so I wanted to give that topic time enough to explore it thoroughly. Uh, But we're going to continue doctrine generally. If you turn to Matthew chapter 16 and verse 18, Matthew chapter 16 and verse 18 states this. This is Jesus speaking. And I say also unto thee that thou art Peter, and upon this rock I will build my church, and the gates of hell shall not prevail against it. Amen. So tonight we're going to be talking about the doctrine of the church. Amen. We understand from previous studies and from our personal study of Scripture that in every period of history, God had a plan. Originally, there wasn't a plan needed for salvation. We were created perfectly. We were created in perfect harmony with our Creator. We had a perfect relationship with Him. We reflected His character. We were created to do so. And then, on that fateful day, Adam and Eve sinned. They rebelled against God. And from that point forward, we no longer had a perfect relationship with God. And yet, that's exactly why God created us. And so, from that point forward, He enacted a plan. A plan that would come to fruition at Calvary. But from that period, He instituted... uh, institutions, whereby we could approach a holy and a righteous God. Sacrificial systems were enacted. During the time of Noah, salvation was in the form of an ark. If you entered into the ark, you were saved. If you didn't enter into the ark, you were not saved. Fast forward to the time of Abraham, where it was required of all of God's people to be circumcised on the eighth day. And if you weren't circumcised and you didn't submit yourself to that command, you were cut off from the people of God. Fast forward some more to the time of Moses and the Mosaic Law, where God instituted a very specific and lengthy set of instructions to God's people whereby they would be a holy and a righteous people, that they would reflect the character of God to the rest of the world. And that lasted until the time of Jesus Christ. And when Jesus came, when the fullness of this whole scenario came, Jesus said that He was going to build something called His church. And the gates of hell will not prevail against it. So what is this church that He refers to? We're in church this evening. We're a part of the church of God. So what does that mean exactly? What is the church? The study of this particular doctrine is known as ecclesiology. That means simply the study of the church and its nature, ordinances, ministry, mission, and government. I thought originally it would be interesting to go over a brief history of the church from the institution of it until present day, but we're probably getting enough of that in other lessons. Therefore, 
We're just going to go right into Scripture, if that's all right with you guys. There are two Greek words that are used. Uh, the first is huriakon, not spelled like it sounds. But this Greek word is the, uh, the, the word that the English word church is derived from. It means belonging to the Lord. It's never applied to the church in the New Testament period. But it is found twice in the New Testament as an adjective applying to the Lord's Supper and to the Lord's Day. Again, meaning belonging to the Lord. The second one most of us are more familiar with, ecclesia. Every use of the word church in the New Testament is translated from this Greek word. It means literally an assembly of people. The term is derived from two Greek words, ek, meaning out from, and kaleo, which means to call. So originally, the ones called out had reference to the legislative body of citizens of the Greek Republic called from their communities to serve the country. That's where the word comes from, ecclesia. If we were to mention a session of the state assembly, we would be using the word assembly in exactly the same way the Greeks used the word ecclesia. By the time Jesus used the word to designate the body he would build, the word borrowed meaning from at least two sources. The Jewish use of the word from the Greek Old Testament or Septuagint where it referred to the congregation of Israel. That was one source that, was, that uh, they pulled from. The second was the Greek employment of the word referring to any assembly of people, whether a constituted body or an unorganized mob. Any one of those could be ecclesia. If we look at Acts chapter 7, verses 37 and 38, we see it used in this manner. Uh, this is that Moses which said unto the children of Israel, A prophet shall the Lord your God raise up unto you of your brethren, like unto me, him shall ye hear. This is he that was in the church in the wilderness. The church in the wilderness. With the angel which spake to him in the Mount Sinai, and with our fathers who received the lively oracles to give unto us. Amen. So, use of the term church in the New Testament. It's used in several different ways. The first is to refer to the universal body of Christ. In Matthew 16, 18, which we've already read, uh, he refers to his church. In this particular instance, he's not referring to a local assembly of believers. He's not referring to a building. He's referring to the church universal. Ephesians 3 and 10 says, To the intent that now unto the principalities and powers in heavenly places might be known by the church the manifold wisdom of God. Again, not referring to a specific body, but the universal church as a whole. Hebrews 12:22 and 23 says, But ye are come unto Mount Zion, and unto the city of the living God, the heavenly Jerusalem, and to an innumerable company of angels, to the general assembly and church of the firstborn, which are written in heaven, and to God the judge of all, and to the spirits of just men made perfect. So the universal church is composed of all genuine Christian believers of all ages, both on earth and in paradise, the total body of Christ from all ages that have ever existed. That's the universal church. The church that will be gathered as one body at the last day. 
the local church. If we look at Colossians 4.16, it says, And when this epistle is read among you, cause that it be read also in the church of the Laodiceans, and that ye likewise read the epistle from Laodicea. In this case, it's referring to a local church body, a specific church. Galatians 1 and 2 says, And all the brethren which are with me unto the churches of Galatia. Again, the local church is composed of Christian believers identified with a constituted body, worshiping and serving Christ in one locality. Okay, The members of a local church constitute the church even when they're not officially assembled together. We're still a part of the church when we're at home or when we're at the workplace or driving to get groceries or wherever it is. We still represent the church of Jesus Christ. Acts 14 and 27 says, And when they were come and had gathered the church together, referring to it as a church before it was gathered together, they rehearsed all that God had done with them and how He had opened the door of faith unto the Gentiles. Okay, so all genuine believers are members of the universal body of Christ. However, all faithful believers are to be identified with a local church where they assemble for worship, fellowship, and service with some regularity. Now, we understand this, that although all people who are born again of water and of spirit, who are living a holy and a righteous life before God, who are considered saved, are part of the body of Christ. However, we still need to belong to a local assembly. We still need to gather together regularly. Hebrews 10, 24 and 25 says this, And let us consider one another to provoke unto love and to good works, not forsaking the assembling of ourselves together, as the manner of some is, but exhorting one another, and so much the more, as ye see the day approaching. If I may take just a moment to comment on this verse, I would appreciate it. Thank you. As ye see the day approaching, we should be gathering more. That's what the Scriptures say. That's not what I'm saying. That's what I just read. That's not from a book that I wrote. That's from the Bible. Okay, we understand that. What does that mean? And why is it saying that? Well, it's saying... What does it mean? It means, and so much the more as you see the day approaching. What day is that? The end times. The time when Jesus Christ is going to come back. We should be gathering together more, not less. It is my intention, and it will be my intention, that we do gather together more, not less. Why? Why do we need to do that? Why are we instructed to do that? Why can't we just have church at home? A lot of people preach and teach that. What's wrong with that? Why can't I just worship Jesus in the comfort of my living room? My robe and slippers with a nice cup of coffee. And we're good to go. I mean, seriously, what's wrong with that? 
Well, we're not gathering together. Technically, we are. Separately. (laughs) Fellowship is so very important as the body of Christ. We need to fellowship one with another. More, not less. If you know if you know someone out in the world, I think most of us do. They're miserable for so many reasons. One of them is that they don't have any friends. They don't. The average person out there has no friends. They have all kinds of followers on Facebook. They know people at work. They may even hang out with some of them after work. But if something bad happens in their life, they have no one. No one that they trust with that. No one they can call up at 2 in the morning when they got a flat tire. They don't have anyone like that. They don't have anyone that they can share their heart with. That they can open up to and be vulnerable with. We do. We have each other. Why are we able to do that? Because we have a relationship with each other. We've learned to trust one another. That's only built by relationship. You can't just, well, I guess you can. You can go to a counselor and spill your your heart and all of that to, to a complete stranger. But by and large, if you know anyone at all, You're going to have to get to know them all the way before you trust them with your deepest, darkest secrets. That comes by doing this. That comes by breaking bread and fellowshipping one with another. That's so important. This whole COVID situation destroyed that. And we're still seeing the effects of that today. Not just in the church, but nationwide, worldwide. The effects that that isolation has, has had and is having is devastating. It's devastating. We're a social people. Even someone like me, introverted, I still need to spend time with people. Not as much as a raging extrovert would need to. But I still need people. I still need you guys. And I still want to spend time with you. We need that. We need that. So that we can exhort one another. So that we can provoke each other unto love and to good works. I need to be accountable to you. You need to be accountable to me. And if I'm holed up at home all the time, I'm not accountable to anyone. No one knows what's going on with me. I don't know what's going on with you. That's not good. That's being separated from the body of Christ. And that's exactly what the enemy is looking for. To separate us. Because Christians are not just believers only. They're disciples of Jesus Christ. They're brethren, sistren, and members of a body. Because of that, we cannot properly be Christians in isolation. We can't. God designed it this way, and He did it on purpose. All right. House churches. 
1 Corinthians 16 and 19 says this, The churches of Asia salute you. Aquila and Priscilla salute you much in the Lord with the church that is in their house. When the church in a given community was very large, there were many house churches in that community, that city. 1 Corinthians 14.23 says, If therefore the whole church be come together into one place, and I'll speak with tongues, etc., etc. That's talking about something else. I want to focus on the first part of that. If therefore the whole church be one, be come together into one place. Why would it be broken up? Because they were meeting in a bunch of homes, typically, in a larger area. In small communities, one house church may have accommodated the entire body. Colossians 4.15 says, Salute the brethren which are in Laodicea and Nymphus and the church which is in his house. A couple examples there. It appears uh, to be anyway that each of these house churches had an elder, a pastor overseeing them, but every house church in that city was considered one church. It was considered one church. Different congregations. Okay, Churches acting in concert. The local churches had a lot of liberty to govern themselves insofar as they were not officially governed by a central authoritative hierarchy in the New Testament. However, the churches did act in concert following apostolic leadership. I'm going to get more into this later, but... Again, authority is so very important. Understanding it, placing yourself underneath it, is so very important. It's important for each of us. God takes it very seriously. And the body of Christ as a whole needs to be placed under spiritual authority as well. That's also important. That's why, and I appreciate the fact that we're an affiliated church with the UPCI. I like that. I appreciate that. I feel comfortable with that. I like being under authority. I think that's, it's not only good, it's necessary. It's necessary. So the churches in the first century were also under, they were under apostolic authority. Acts 14 and 23 says this, When they had ordained them elders in every church and had prayed with fasting, they commended them to the Lord on whom they believed. So the elders of of the churches were ordained by their leadership. 1 Corinthians 16.19 says, The churches of Asia salute you. Aquila and Priscilla salute you much in the Lord with the church that is in their house. And 2 Corinthians 11.28 says, Beside those things that are without, that which cometh upon thee daily, the care of all the churches. So Paul, for example, he instructed local churches on doctrine, practice, and government. He sent greetings on behalf of groups of churches in an area. And he appointed elders over churches or instructed fellow workers to appoint officers. So we see, it seems to me that uh, they were under some stricter guidelines than we are today. (laughs) No. 
But our churches today are, uh, they're pretty adamant about, adamant about being autonomous. They're pretty adamant about being sovereign, self-governing. I just, I, I see some of that. I mean, there was, you know, there are some things that, that went along with that, but I also see that they were submitted to apostolic authority in a lot of areas. Like, for example, it doesn't look like they elected their pastor. It looks like that was appointed for them. I'll just throw that out to two on and we'll move right on. Amen. <laughs> I don't know how we feel about that, but that seems to be the, uh, the pattern in the first century church. How the word church is not used in the New Testament. It's not used to represent a building. Ecclesia, or I'm sorry, ecclesia, is always referencing people. It never has reference to a building of any kind. Okay? Church buildings that were built for the specific purpose of gathering together to worship didn't come into existence until about the 3rd century A.D. Okay? Until then, it was house to house. It was wherever they could gather. Maybe at this point they were starting to gather in the, the caverns. But uh, there were no church buildings built specifically for that purpose. Uh, when church buildings did come into existence, they were referred to with a different word, Kyriak. Calling the, I thought this, this fact was interesting, so I, I threw this one in too. Calling the building a church is a figure of speech called metamony. I'm sorry, metanomy, which means literally the container put for the contents. For example, if you look at 1 Corinthians 11.26, it says this, For as often as ye eat this bread and drink this cup, ye do show the Lord's death till he come. Okay, do we literally drink the cup? I don't. I don't drink the cup. I drink the, what's in the cup. See? That's an example of, of what we're talking about here. Typically, when you're referring to going to church, being the church, it's okay to refer to this as the church as long as you're really referring to the people inside the church. Not the building, but the contents of the building. The container put for the contents. All right, same thing. We're calling the church the church, but it's actually you and me. We're the church. Okay, it's not used to refer to a denomination. In the 21st century, we got, uh, we got a lot of denominations, all kinds of them. But in the first century, there was only one. There truly was a Universal Catholic Church in the first century. But this Catholic Church was actually scriptural. It was based on scripture, doctrinally accurate. So, they don't typically refer to that as the Catholic Church, but 
In the first century church, there were no separate named identities or denominations because there were none. There were no Baptists, Lutherans, Presbyterians, etc., etc. No doubt the ideal condition, and as I see it, I think this would be God's perfect will for His church, would have been that the church remained unified, one. Now there is a movement today that's seeking to Bring us all together, okay? But not according to the plan of God. I would have no problem coming together as long as everyone would submit to Scripture as He has revealed to us, truth as He's revealed it to us in Scripture. But there, this ecumenical movement is looking for the least common denominator, as it were. Let's find something that everyone can agree on and let's just build on that. And we'll just throw everything else out. If you see ecumenicalism, if you see ecumenical, uh, that's what that is referring to. Let's just bring everyone together and let's all just love Jesus. Let's just all worship Jesus. And we're not going to worry about salvation issues. We're not going to worry about doctrinal issues. Uh, We just want to just come together and be one body. It's, It's a noble goal. I think it's the will of God to be unified. I do. But not like that. If we're going to be unified, it'll be under the authority of Jesus Christ. That would be God's will. But not like this. All right. So the church does not refer to a building. It does not refer to a denomination. The officers, ministers, and leaders of the church. Okay, one thing that's interesting to note is that titles borne by New Testament church leaders were more descriptive of their ministries than necessarily their office or their rank. Okay? People didn't seek to get promoted to deacon because that paid a little bit better or uh, I had more people under me. That was that was not really a consideration. In fact, uh, continuing that analogy, the higher up in rank you went, the more danger you were in. Paul felt it necessary to encourage people seeking the ministry. You seek the office of a bishop, it's a good thing. But, uh, you know... As time went on, and I, I really do hate to, to keep bringing up the Roman Catholic Church. But historically, this is how it went, so that's how it went. When that thing got going, it, it shifted to be the exact opposite. People went into the church for every reason except to serve God. They went in because it was it was good for business. It, it was nice to have that title next to your name. Uh, it, it meant power. It meant wealth. It meant authority. Especially if we could get to the office of the Pope. Then, then you were basically, at some points in their history, you were basically God on earth. Hopple infallibility. Wouldn't that be nice to never be wrong? 
<laughs> I mean, to truly never be wrong, not just to think it. That'd be kind of cool. In any case, they were wrong. But originally, it was never meant to be like that. It was meant to be a ministry. It was meant to be an act of service. God created you for that specific reason. That's why you're here. Even today, God creates us for different reasons, different ministries, different purposes. He fits us into the body of Christ according to His will. You don't have 80 people behind the pulpit. You don't have 80 people teaching a Sunday school class either. You got people doing both. You got someone doing everything that needs to be done. That's how the body works. And it's an act of service. It's not something we're forced to do. It's not something that we do out of duty, I hope, or fear of retribution, but out of love. I love Jesus, so I want to serve Him in any way I can. That's why we serve. That's why we minister. And in the New Testament, that's what the focus was. That's what it needs to be today. First members and leaders of the early church were Jews. They were familiar with the, the way that the synagogue was organized and set up. And so, patterned church organization somewhat after that of the synagogue. There was definitely organization in the New Testament church, however. A lot of it. When problems arose in certain ministry activities, leaders were appointed to administer those activities. If we look at Acts chapter 6, verses 1 through 7. And in those days when the number of the disciples was multiplied, there arose a murmuring of the Grecians against the Hebrews because their widows were neglected in the daily ministration. Then the twelve called the multitude of the disciples unto them and said, It is not reason that we should leave the word of God and serve tables. Wherefore, brethren, look ye out among you seven men of honest report, full of the Holy Ghost and wisdom, whom we may appoint over this business. But we will give ourselves continually to prayer and to the ministry of the word. And the saying pleased the whole multitude, and they chose Stephen, a man full of faith and of the Holy Ghost, and Philip, and Procurus, and Nicandor, and Timon, Timon, and Parmenas, and Nicholas, a proselyte of Antioch, whom they set before the apostles. And when they had prayed, they laid their hands on them, and the word of God increased, and the number of the disciples multiplied in Jerusalem greatly. And a great company of the priests were obedient to the faith. Okay, here we see that there was a problem. Something was being neglected. The disciples were called to take care of it. They did so by delegating some of their authority to someone else. It's not necessary. They said it's not meet or right for the disciples to do everything. It just, it's not efficient. That may work with five or ten people. But they had more than five or ten people. And one man can only do so much. A few men can only do so much. 
it becomes necessary to delegate some of that authority to other people who can take care of it just fine, who are looking for something to do, who are looking for an area to serve God in. That's perfect. That's exactly what should be happening. So they were organized to do that. All right, the disciples met regularly for worship at first every day. Later they met on the first day of the week. If we look at Acts 2, 46 and 47. And they, continuing daily with one accord in the temple and breaking bread from house to house, did eat their meat with gladness and singleness of heart, praising God and having favor with all the people. And the Lord added to the church daily such as should be saved. Well, they were getting together daily. Probably small wonder while they were being added to the church daily. <laughs> and so much the more as you see the day approaching. Acts 5 and 42 says, And daily in the temple and in every house they ceased not to teach and preach Jesus Christ. Amen. Acts 20 and 7 says, And upon the first day of the week, when the disciples came together to break bread, Paul preached unto them, ready to depart on the morrow and continue to speech until midnight. On the first day of the week, they came together to break bread. 1 Corinthians 16 and 2 says, Upon the first day of the week, let every one of you lay by him in store, as God hath prospered him, that there be no gatherings when I come. Okay. So they were organized in that way. Diligence was given to the appointment of proper leadership. Is it important to choose out good leaders? How important is it? Is it worth a little bit of prayer? Is it worth some fasting? Some deliberation? Some consideration? I would think so. Acts one twenty three through 26 says, And they appointed two, Joseph called Barsabas, who was surnamed Justice and Matthias. And they prayed and said, Thou, Lord, which knowest the hearts of all men, so whether of these two hast thou, thou hast chosen, that he may take part of this ministry and apostleship, from which Judas by transgression fell, that he might go to his own place. And they gave forth their lots, and the lot fell upon Matthias. And he was numbered with the eleven apostles. I have an opinion about that situation, and I'm going to reserve that for another time. All right, so they deliberated. They sought the face of God for that decision. And then they cast lots, which is, by the way, the last time we see that ever happen again. Acts 14 and 23 says, And when they had ordained them elders in every church and had prayed with fasting, they commended them to the Lord on whom they believed. And Titus 1 and 5 says, For this cause left I thee in Crete, that thou shouldest set in order the things that are wanting. And ordain elders in every city as I had appointed thee. Amen. So, they had authority to do that. They had authority to uh, appoint leadership, to set in order the house of God as they saw fit. Qualifications for elders and deacons are set forth in some detail. 1 Timothy 3, verses 1 through 13, says this. And I like, and I appreciate that uh, 
Nowhere in Scripture do I see for a qualification that he preaches well. I don't see that anywhere. Now, I appreciate a good preacher. I think we all do. But that's not a qualification. All right. This is a true saying. If a man desire the office of a bishop, he desireth a good work. A bishop then must be blameless, the husband of one wife, vigilant, sober, of good behavior, given to hospitality, apt to teach, not given to wine, no striker, not greedy of filthy lucre, but patient, not a brawler, not covetous, one that ruleth well his own house, having his children in subjection with all gravity. For if a man know not how to rule his own house, how shall he take care of the church of God? Not a novice, lest being lifted up with pride he fall into the condemnation of the devil. These are a lot of qualifications for an unorganized mob of people. Moreover, he must have a good report of them which are without, lest he fall into the reproach and snare of the devil. Likewise must the deacons be grave, not double-tongued, not given to much wine, not greedy of filthy lucre, holding the mystery of the faith in a pure conscience. And let these also first be proved. Then let them use the office of a deacon being found blameless. Even so, must their wives be grave, not slanderers, sober, faithful in all things. Let the deacons be the husbands of one wife, ruling their children and their own houses well. For they that have used the office of a deacon well purchase to themselves a good degree and great boldness in the faith which is in Christ Jesus. So they set in order some qualifications that you would have to hold if you were to hold some of these offices. They weren't going to promote the basest of the people, like we see sometimes in the Old Testament. They were going to promote the best people, the spiritual people, the ones who were willing to serve, the ones who were willing to submit themselves to authority, the ones who were willing to, to place themselves under the, the hand of God and to be used by Him however He wanted to use them. That's the kind of people they were looking for. All right, each church had the authority to discipline or exclude certain members. If we look at Matthew eighteen fifteen through 17, it says, Moreover, if thy brother shall trespass against thee, go and tell him his fault between thee and him alone. If he shall hear thee, thou hast gained thy brother. But if he will not hear thee, then take with thee one or two more, that in the mouth of two or three witnesses every word may be established. And if he shall neglect to hear them, tell it unto the church. But if he neglect to hear the church, let him be unto thee as an heathen man and a publican. Okay, so here we see a little bit of autonomy. You didn't necessarily have to call the Apostle Peter to come to your local assembly and make a ruling here. They could do it themselves. They were authorized to do that themselves. But, Jesus himself gave the specific instructions as to how it was to take place. Okay, members are admonished to respect and obey church leaders. 1 Thessalonians 5, 12 and 13 says, And we beseech you, brethren, to know them which labor among you, and are over you in the Lord, and admonish you, and to esteem them very highly in love for their work's sake, and be at peace among yourselves. Hebrews 13 and 17 says, Obey them that have the rule over you, and submit yourselves, for they watch for your souls, as they that must give account that they may do it with joy and not with grief, for that is unprofitable for you. Why are we commanded to submit? And that is a command, church. 
We are commanded to submit for our protection. We are commanded to submit for our benefit. If we see it as anything other than that, that it is for our benefit, it is for our blessing and our protection, that we place ourselves under God's authority. If we see it in any other way, you're wrong. You're wrong. That's not what authority is. That's not what it represents. To us, it represents protection. When we submit ourselves to the hand of God, when we submit ourselves to those whom God has placed in authority over us, and we all have to submit, all of us, if we are expecting God to bless us, if we are expecting God to promote us in His kingdom, that's the plan of God. The only one that doesn't submit to authority is God Himself. Only God doesn't submit to authority. He is authority. He is the authority. In all of creation, He is the highest. He is the greatest. Alright. So we are admonished to respect and obey church leaders. Missionaries are sent forth by the church with official sanction. We look at Acts chapter 13. Verses 1 through 3. Now there were in the church that was at Antioch certain prophets and teachers, as Barnabas and Simeon, that was called Niger, and Lucius of Cyrene, and Manan, which had been brought up with Herod the Tetrarch, and Saul. As they ministered to the Lord and fasted, the Holy Ghost said, Separate me, Barnabas and Saul, for the work whereunto I have called them. And when they had fasted and prayed and laid their hands on them, they sent them away. That's something we do uh, in our organization. When you go before the, the district board seeking licensure, they will lay their hands on you. They will pray with you. The district superintendent prays with you. Pronounces a blessing upon you. I think that's good. I think that's right. Our ministers, our ministries, uh, they should be confirmed. They should be confirmed by others, elders. That's the way it ought to be. That's the way it was in the first century church. That's the way it needs to be today. When missionaries were sent out, they were commissioned. Their ministries were proved. It was verified. It wasn't, I feel like I should go somewhere and, and start a church. Why do you feel like that? I'm not doing anything here. Well, how about we pray about that for a while? Let's, let's see if God will confirm that calling. Or if you're just getting agitated in the moment. I tell you what, there's a difference between being frustrated and feeling a call of God. I felt both. A lot of you probably have felt both. There's a huge difference. The results are hugely different as well. So again, that's a protection for us. I'm feeling a call to this. I'm feeling a call to that. Well, let's, let's let God confirm that. Let's let God uh, speak through an elder. Let's let God uh, speak to someone in prayer. 
or give a word of wisdom, a word of knowledge. Let's wait for God to confirm that. Because God is the one that calls, right? God is the one that that, uh, calls someone to any ministry. Not just the fivefold ministry, not just missionary work. Whatever ministry God created you for, He's the one that called you to that. So He's the one that's going to make sure that takes place. There's a, uh, I don't think he would mind me saying this, uh, the, the, the missionary that was here uh, for our faith promise, Brother Ray Nichols, he's told me this, he's told the church at Eau Claire this, so I think he'll be, I think he'll be good with this. He felt a call to be a missionary for a long time before he was finally able to go. Why is that? Because this pastor wouldn't let anyone go. So he had a choice to make. He can get frustrated and say, well, bless God, I'm going. I know God called me. I know God's calling me. Turns out he was right. God was calling him. But he submitted to the man of God. And he waited for God to confirm that. It took a long time. I think it took over ten years. I don't remember the exact amount, but it took a long time. And every day he was feeling the weight of that call. But he submitted to the man of God. He submitted to God's authority. And he waited for that confirmation. And when it came, things just boom, 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 boom. And things exploded over there. Because he did it properly. He did it decently and in order. God did call him. He did. But to do this properly, he waited for the man of God to confirm that. He waited for confirmation. And God blessed him because of that. Blessed him miraculously, mightily, because of that. And so, for our protection, I know we always know what's right, and most other people don't. I I understand that. I get that. Especially when you're really feeling something. But that's not, when, when you really feel that from God, that's not a license to just go off willy-nilly and take care of it. He still wants you to do that properly. It's got to be done properly. This is His body and He set it up the way He has for a reason. Let's, let's confirm these things. Let's get confirmation. As an aside, I want God to call people from this church. And I'm looking forward to sending people out of this church to ministry, to start a church, to pastor a church, to be a worship leader somewhere. I'm looking forward to that. But it's got to be done decently. It's got to be done decently. This is His kingdom. This is His church. It's not yours and it's not mine. All right. A council was convened in Jerusalem to settle for the whole to settle for the whole Christian church a dispute over doctrine and practice. The first synod, <laughs> as it were. Acts chapter 15, I'm not going to read the whole thing. Cuz there's 40 plus verses there. But basically, the Jewish converts 
are wanting the Gentile converts to be circumcised and to obey the law of Moses. Okay. Because that's the way to salvation, right? No. (laughs) No, it's not. But they were Jewish converts. Okay? You see where they're coming from. The Gentiles, of course, weren't too keen on that. So a meeting was convened. And they talked about it. People spoke. People got up and spoke. And James finally gets up after hearing everything. And he says this, starting with verse 19 of Acts chapter 15. Wherefore, my sentence is that we trouble not them which from among the Gentiles are turned to God, but that we write unto them that they abstain from pollutions of idols and from fornication and from things strangled and from blood. Okay, so what do we see here? We see that there was a disagreement concerning doctrine, right? What does the Bible say? I mean, we got to look at it from their perspective and maybe cut them a little slack because this thing is brand new. They don't have all the epistles to look to right now. Okay? They don't have any epistles. Not yet. Yeah, maybe they did. I'd have to go back and look when they were written. But anyway, it's brand new. No codified New Testament yet. All they have really for Scripture are the Old Testament. That's what they have. And the teachings of Jesus. That's what they have at this point in time. So, this is a legitimate concern. The Jewish believers really, they felt this pretty strongly. So this was, this was a big deal. But they hashed it out. I imagine there was some prayer and fasting going on, seeking God over this. But at the end, the authority, James, the one who had the authority to make the call, the final decision, stood up and he made it. And everybody thought, that sounds great. We'll do it that way. And the work of God continued to be blessed. So they had these things already instituted. They had this organization already set up from the very beginning. I think it was God that did that. I think it was God that spoke to the apostles using apostolic authority, instituted these things according to the plan of God. So that's where we're going to stop tonight. Next week, Lord willing, we're going to start talking about the offices specifically. What was an elder? What was a deacon? What was an apostle? Prophet? All of these things. What does that mean for us today? Amen. It's important that we understand what the church is. It's important that we understand uh, what the Bible has to say about it because, again, Once the Bible was thrown out historically, we got got a, a monstrosity that had nothing to do with Scripture. It had no resemblance whatsoever to what God instituted, what God purchased with His blood. So it's important that we know what the church is supposed to be. It's important that we know how it's supposed to operate. We can't just operate as a church any way we want. 
Again, this is not our church. It's God's church. He's in charge of it. He sets the ordinances. He sets the rules. Not us. Now, when there's no clear ruling, I think we have the authority to get a synod together and talk it out. Seek the face of God. And we do. We do that. Come up with the best plan to move forward. But when it comes to Scripture, when it comes to what God has commanded us, we can't alter that. We've got to do it His way. This is His church. Amen. So, uh, we're going to move forward with that. We're going to look at the offices and uh, a whole lot more. Let's all stand. Lord Jesus, we are so thankful for the plan of salvation that You purchased for us at Calvary. I'm thankful, Lord Jesus, that at Calvary You purchased what You called Your church and that the gates of hell shall not prevail against it. Oh, hallelujah, Jesus. I am so very thankful to be a part of that church today. Hallelujah. Thank You, Jesus. I pray, Lord, that as our study continues, that You would reveal to us, that You would teach us what is exactly this church that we belong to. What does it represent? How are we to act within it? What is its purpose? Help us, Lord Jesus, I pray, to see, to, to understand truth and help us to act accordingly. Bless us as we go our separate ways. Bring us back at the day appointed. And these things we ask in Jesus' name. Amen. Amen. God bless you. Thank you for being here tonight. Sunday service. It's Mother's Day, right? Next Sunday. You guys get a normal message then. But next Sunday. Okay. God bless you. You're dismissed.